Welcome to Other You, a podcast where we discuss a decision in our lives that may or may not have had a long-lasting impact. We unpack some of the factors behind it and then explore in short story form what the other version of ourselves might have experienced around that time or shortly thereafter. I'm your host, Dee. Let's see where this story takes us. And welcome back to another episode of Other You. Today, uh, I have with me uh, a former writer and contributor to Psycho Drive-In. He works communications for Can You Handlebar? If you have a beard, hopefully you've heard of this company. And if you haven't, please go check it out. It's wicked cool. Um, and he is the creator of the Hardy Fighter Handshake. Ask some questions. <laughs> you might find out. <laughs> welcome to the show, Adam Bearclaw. Welcome. Hey, man. Thank you. Good yeah. to see you, D. So glad to have you, man. So glad to have you. Welcome. Welcome. How uh, how have you been lately? I mean, how has life been treating you over the last uh, few weeks? Uh, well, ups and downs. Um, pandemic is really monkey wrenching me. Mm, that's fair. So I'm I'm struggling with uh, sleep and focus and concentration, mm. but uh, doing my best to overcome those things. Right on, right on. All we can do. That's all we can ask, right? Is that we do our best. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I'd like to uh, wish you a very happy Thanksgiving. Thank you very much for being a part of our Thanksgiving episode. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, we one of probably, my favorite holidays. Is it? I, I love Thanksgiving. Yeah. Thanksgiving is yeah, my, my absolute favorite holiday. Um, and well, let's say around, around 2010, my parents retired and then moved to Florida. Right. And I'm one of five kids. And, um, my one sister has lived in California since 99, maybe 2000, 99. Yeah. So she's been in California for like pretty much all of my adult life. Uh, I have another sister who lives in Florida and then, um, I have uh, another sister that lives in North Carolina at the time uh, my sister that lives in North Carolina was talking about moving to Florida with my parents. And so I was like, dang, everyone's gone. Where are my holidays going? And my yeah. brother, he lives in the South suburbs. Uh, and he was like, Oh, you know what? Why don't you, why don't you come have holidays with me? And I was like, Oh, sweet. And then like an hour later, I was like, Hey, so about Thanksgiving this year, he's like, Oh, well, shoot, I got to talk to, I have to talk to my wife and see what plans she has. And it's like, Oh man, we just talked about this. Yeah. No. Come on. Yeah. Uh, don't pull the rug out from under me. Right. Uh, but a friend of mine, uh, a couple friends of mine, they were like, hey, well, well we're going to host Thanksgiving this year and invite everyone we know that doesn't have a home. And I was like, I want to be there. And so I did that for a few years. I, I love, love, and it was Thanksgiving specifically, but I, I love Thanksgiving. Yeah. I love it. Same here. Yeah. My, uh, my mom's side of the family, my mom was one of five sisters mm. and they do the most amazing Thanksgiving spread ever. My, mm-hmm. my cousin is a pastry chef, oh. so she brings it. Um, all like everybody in my, in my mom's side of the family specifically are excellent cooks and they all do something really special for me, which is that I have a pretty severe onion allergy. It oh. won't kill me. It's not like anaphylactic shock, but okay. if I, if I taste it, I'll immediately vomit. And oh. if I don't taste it, then it's just, it's just a bad day for me the next day. But, yeah. um, they always take care of me. They make special dishes with, with no onions in them just for me. Oh, that's amazing. I feel, yeah, I feel like royalty and oh. it's just the best spread. Like yeah. everybody brings their A game and yeah. 
I get to hang out with, I'm very lucky to have a, a really great family full of cool people that mm-hmm. I would probably be friends with, even if I weren't related to them. Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah. And I love hanging out with them. And it's just, it's just great. So they're all up in Pittsburgh for the most part. Okay. Um, so I like to go up there and spend time there. My dad's side of the family was also in Pittsburgh. So it was like just these weird, massive family, family reunions around Thanksgiving when I would go up there to hang out. So Mm. lots of special times, man. That's awesome. That's awesome. I love, that makes me so happy to hear. I love, I absolutely love Thanksgiving and everything around it. I, I love the idea of a holiday where you can just hang out in your pajamas all day. And yeah. that's cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, we'll, I'll bring a dish or whatever, but it, it, there's no, like you have to buy presents for everybody kind of right. steaks or anything. Right. You know? None of that. There's yeah. no pressure. It's just come hang out, feast mm-hmm. and lay about. Yeah. Uh, my, my favorite part growing up was the, uh, the whole idea of eating until like you were ready to pass out. Everyone sits down on the couch. Uh, and then my, my cousin who would come, she played a D one basketball. So we were always watching a, a basketball game. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter yeah. who was playing. We were watching a basketball game. So we would all eat until it hurt, go sit down, unbutton pants, watch basketball, nap for a little bit, wake up and like, all right, who's hungry? Let's go. Yeah. Hit, <laughs> you know? hit those leftovers, man. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Awesome. Cool beans. All right. So let's, we're going to stop dilly dallying and uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's, uh, let's go ahead and get into it. Um, let's, so um, for those of you listening, um, Adam has two potential options that we're going to discuss and then we'll pick one from there and then go, uh, continue the interview from there. Uh, but hit hit us with the first one. Okay. Well, I I wanted to ask, do you have like a name for these things? What do you mean? Do you call them like, are they flashpoints? Are they inflection points? Are they, are they time ripples? Oh, so no, I don't have anything clever. That's a good, okay. that's a good point. Maybe I, sh- I should come up with something clever for these. Uh, <laughs> I have literally just been calling them the decision, right? Okay. Okay. And yeah. albeit not all of them have been active decisions in people's lives. They're just, they're, they're, you know, a pretty, Im- like pretty important moments, uh, okay. where a divergence, I, I have created a, di- a divergence. So if you have a, a flashpoint that is not, uh, an active decision on your part, cool beans, let's, Let's, oh, okay. let's chat about it. Great. Yeah. So most of my life up to a certain point, mm-hmm. when I was faced with a decision like uh, do the, do the responsible thing and go to college and finish, finish doing that. Yeah. Uh, but the reality of life said, well, I also need to make money to pay my bills. Mm-hmm. I would kind of try to do both, but it, it would always sort of fall to, where the immediate need was. Mm-hmm. So while I was in school, a lot of the time I would get kind of ramped up and I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to finish. I'm going to get that English degree and get that yeah. philosophy degree and whatever. And I would, you know, get, get hyped up, get a semester all laid out, maybe even do extremely well for one semester or two, but eventually I would be in a position where I needed to pay my rent and whatever job I was working. Uh, mm-hmm. I would get an opportunity to get promoted and I would like jump on it because mm. I needed the money. Okay. So that kind of, that was sort of a pattern that sort of repeated itself for a while. And it's relevant to this first sort of 
you know, flashpoint or whatever, and that I had been in and out of school for a while, uh, really just interested in doing something creative. Okay. And I, it was even to the point where I was taking the same fiction workshop over and over again, knowing I even I wasn't going to get credit for it. Okay. Just because I wanted the motivation to write and I wanted to be in that structured environment. And, mm-hmm. You know, I was enjoying that just for what it was. But then I, uh, again, accepted a promotion and went into like a full-time management position at a call center. Okay. And that evolved until I was kind of managing a help desk and training to be a programmer. Ooh, and okay. none of those things really actively employed any sort of creative effort or whatever. But while I was doing this, a friend of mine had started a website called crowndozen.com. And it was basically a cultural review site. And this was sort of at the, the, the beginnings of what I would call kind of the street art or pervasive art culture really kind of coming up on the rise. Okay. Uh, if you're familiar with like Juxtapose magazine and kind of a lot of the, you know, I would, I would probably be referred to like lowbrow art, something like that. Okay. But it was this idea of, you know, making art that if you wanted to buy a print of my painting, you could do it. You okay. could, you could spend 30 bucks and you could get a copy of it. It wasn't uh, this like remote fine art concept that was going to cost you thousands of dollars to even engage with. Okay. You could go, you could appreciate it. You could take some home. And that kind of took the form of a lot of different things from uh, just, you know, custom culture in general, T-shirts, uh, you know, whatever, whatever you wanted to put your art on, people were doing it. And then there was also like a movement to make sort of custom sculpture or toys okay. and sell those. Um, and you're, you're in Chicago, right? Yep. Yeah. So one of the like founding storefronts of this effort is a place called Roto Fuji. Just a oh. great, cool. Yeah, I'm familiar with Red Fuji. Toy store. Yeah, yeah. So they were they were like instrumental back in the day in promoting this type of culture and getting these artists exposure. Mm-hmm. And this website that my friend designed uh, had sort of a focus on that. And it, it I, I wrote a lot of reviews and also did a lot of interviews okay. of artists whose work that I loved at the time. And that introduced me to a lot of people. It wasn't anything like there's no money associated with it in any way. Uh, any, anything that came in was used to just maintain the site and, you know, keep up with costs or whatever. Mm -hmm. But it was, it was a, is a time where like I was getting to kind of flex my creative muscle in a way that I never had before. And I love art. I love music. I love film. I love theater, but I don't have any inherent talent for those things. And this felt like my way to recognize that, talk mm-hmm. about it, be engaged with it. Okay. And it was going super well. Um, in the meantime, I had taken on this job responsibility, but the company that I worked for went into... I don't even know what you would call it kind of like a weird torpor where they wanted to sell the company and it had all these assets associated with it. Mm -hmm. We were, we were, the employees were considered assets as well. So they kind of kept us on, but there wasn't really any work coming in. Okay. So my, uh, my average work day 
went from, you know, like 60 hours a week of like programming, help desk stuff, Mm -hmm. uh, micromanaging stuff to not, not always having a lot to do. Hmm. So I was really focused on, you know, working on this, this site with my friend, promoting these artists, talking to people. And one of the things that came about from that as an opportunity was a guy named Peter Grease, who just a phenomenal painter, um, had put out some work and I talked to him about it and reviewed it. And I'd also, at that time, I was writing for a couple of different, very like low tier magazines. And uh, he really liked, we got along really well. We, we, we liked each other and he okay. liked uh, the way that I wrote and he presented me with an idea and it was essentially a pitch for a children's animated program. Mm. This was around the time that Nickelodeon was like, we're going to need another SpongeBob eventually. Yeah. Like SpongeBob's doing great, but you know, we need to get something in the bank here. Yeah. So there was this call for submissions and based on whatever prelim he had come up with, they were like, yeah, let's, let's, let's get a pitch going. So he got a hold of me and like within a weekend, I had to come up with an entire first season of Holy smokes. Like, yeah. Of like, you know, kind of a, a rough sketch of each episode and okay. like a ongoing narrative for this. Uh, so you, you had to, you had to cartoon. come up with a season arc as well as episode arcs. Absolutely. Yeah. In, in one yeah. weekends. Nice. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Now it's not full scripts. So sure. you have to yeah. like have the full dialogue, but it was like, what, what is the, the idea for each episode? Okay. What is the idea for the season for the, you know, the building narrative? Mm-hmm. And it, and it was super fun. His idea was originally his idea, and this was this was based on a painting that he'd done. It was this sort of outrageous uh, hillbilly caricature, mm. and it was this uh, character who they, these were like little kind of uh, Appalachian holler trolls. Okay, and they all you know kind of it was, it was kind of like a like a super redneck deep South version of the Smurfs almost. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I, you know, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I did this, you know, put all this together, got, I think it was like 24 episodes in format and, you know, shipped that off to him. He packaged it with his art and nothing ever happened with it, you know, as, mm. as you would expect after yeah. having done all that work and oh, yeah. <laughs> gotten our hopes up. But I, I think that would be a great idea for a potential other me. Okay. What if so, they had taken off? Okay, so what what if what if they had accepted your guys's pitch for yes. this? Okay, and, and then, it was originally it was called Poop Tooth. Poop Tooth. But they they nixed that pretty early. They sure. didn't they didn't like that. So I think we ended up with Cornweed Holler. Cornweed Holler. Yeah. Okay. Cool beans. Um, and you said Peter Grease he. Uh, he painted, um, was he going to be one of the collaborators on the project or? Oh yeah, guys- absolutely. He was, it was his concept. Essentially. Okay. So his, so from yeah. his own, uh, painting. Yeah. Uh, okay. Cornweed Holler came from his painting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He had, okay. He'd done a number of paintings that were, uh, 
you know, again, sort of these grotesque caricatures of, of, uh, of hillbillies and mm-hmm. sort of Appalachian stereotypes, but they were just crushingly gorgeous in detail right. and okay. just, you know, beautiful, like almost like a Basil Wolverton kind of like extreme detail, but gross and, you know, revelatory and just mm. amazing stuff. And, okay. and it inspired a lot of, you know, great writing, uh, or actually it inspired me to write great things about him, which ah. is how, how that uh, relationship got started. Gotcha. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Cool beans. All right. So that's flashpoint number one. Uh, yeah. what was the other memory in your life where you're like, Oh man. Okay. So kind of building off of that. So that all of that came up in that time period. Okay. I was doing these interviews for this website. I was meeting these artists. Um, I, I submitted work for a magazine that uh, one of the artists that I interviewed was mm-hmm. producing. Okay. And I had, I don't know, three, maybe four uh, pieces in that, in his, the first issue that he ever did. Oh, wow. And it's one of the high points of my writing career. It's a magazine called High Fructose. It's still in production. Nice. Um, yeah. And it's, it's just a, a really slick art mag that covers uh, this type of, you know, pervasive slash lowbrow art, whatever you want to call it. Okay. Um, but the guy, the guy who, you know, offered me this opportunity was someone that I'd interviewed. He, again, you know, liked the, the way that I wrote and mm-hmm. wanted to see if I would be interested in doing this. It, it was a sort of a speculative thing. So okay. there wasn't any money involved. Uh, we just really want, I wanted to be a part of it because he was doing it. Okay. This guy named Alex party. He's a incredible artist and uh, it was a huge success. And right at that time, like right as that issue was going to publication and, you know, there was some hype building up. Mm-hmm. He was asking me about continuing to be a part of it. And I got a job offer. Yeah, of course you did. <laughs> so yeah, the company that I was working for that had just kind of been in hibernation for a while, finally got bought out. Okay. And uh, the new company came in. And in my theory is they kind of took a look around and thought, well, we're gonna we're gonna have to fire everybody here. So mm. let's let's find the biggest, scariest looking guy and we'll put him in charge so he can do it all. And they, you know, put me in charge of this wing of their operation. Okay. And not knowing what was gonna happen at all. Like I don't think they really had any expectations that this call center that I was now in charge of or whatever would would you know, amount to anything in terms of their much larger operation. Okay. But it did, it took off. So, Oh, wow. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of a byproduct of where I am. I live in West Virginia. Uh, the cost of living is so low here. The, the wage is so low here that it is really profitable for companies to come in and do this type of, you know, call center type work. It's been a big staple of our area for, you know, a decade or two at this point. Hmm. But it worked. Um, and I, I, I'm not giving myself any credit for that. I don't, I don't care about that. But what, what ended up happening was I took this job offer that was like sort of on the precipice of, oh, do you want to do something fun and creative? But who knows if you'll make any money or here's a stable job with a, a higher salary than you could probably get uh, without a college degree at your mm-hmm. age. So, you know, I went, I went for the money. It seemed like the safe bet. Sure. And 
you know, definitely some what ifs and regrets there, but okay, that continued for 12 years. Oh, wow. I did that. Yeah. I did that for 12 years and it became a soul crushing effort. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I liked the work. The work itself was good. It was uh, public policy, health research, things like that. It wasn't like, you know, sleazy telemarketer stuff at all. We were never okay. taking money from anybody. It was all surveys. Um, and some of it was really detailed and in depth. We did like some really great stuff uh, concerning PTSD and the National Guard and like things that I was proud of. Uh, but it, at the end of the day, it's still a, a you know call center job, like a sure. minimum wage entry level job. Yeah. And it was a huge, massive, crushing turnover constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, there was also like a a weird ebb and flow of the available work. So like you were constantly laying people off, constantly mm-hmm. hiring people. And over, you know, 10 plus years of that, it just got to be way too much. Mm-hmm. So we kind of build up to the other uh, sort of, you know, flashpoint, which would be uh, about four and a half years ago, I quit that job. Okay. And I went to work for Can You Handlebar. Okay. And this was a job that it started out with kind of similar to what I was doing before with sort of blogging. Um, I met some guys who worked for Can You Handlebar. They were great people. They needed somebody to write articles for them about beards. And that was something that I did. And it was fun. And they, again, I liked what they were doing. I liked their product. Um, and they, they were happy to have somebody do, do a little bit of writing. Okay. Then I get a call one day, my friend, now my very close friend, Brian Furby, uh, gave me a phone call one day and, and I didn't know him really well at all at this point and said, uh, Hey, what are you doing next weekend? And I told him I didn't have any plans. And he said, uh, do you want to drive up to New York with me and work this trade show? And it was, it was the kind of thing where I was really disillusioned with my current job at the time, Yeah, you know, and this just seemed like a really kind of fun, cool thing to do that would get me away from all of the stuff that I had to worry about on the day to day. Wait, so was this, was this, um, was this, uh, before you joined can you handlebar or yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I was just doing a little bit of uh, blogging for them. Okay. And... So, so you hadn't taken the job with them yet. No, you were contributing. Okay. There was no job. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. So you're contributing, yeah. um, some content for them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But you're still working yeah. the call center. Okay. Exactly. Okay. And basically I get, I get in, in Brian's car and it's a 14 hour drive and we had to do it straight through Oosh. in order to get up there in time. Yeah. Okay. So I get to know this guy extremely well <laughs> in the 14 hours up and then the 14 hours back as well. Yeah. But, um, you know, he's one of my dearest friends and mm. as we talked, you know, like we talked about the business and, and, uh, what we were going to be doing and all of that. But we talked about everything else as well and just shared, shared our life stories. And it was just one of those moments where you meet somebody and they just have a profound effect on you and yeah. you know, it, it changes your life. In this case, it, you know, literally changed my life because I got up to this trade show. I met the owner of the company. I met the other people that worked there and we all just got along. Like we'd been friends forever. Mm. And 
as I said, I, you know, I, I was already a huge fan of the products. I used them myself. Like oh. it was just, it was like, if you're a fanboy of a brand and then mm-hmm. they're like, Hey, do you want to come hang out with us and tell everybody how great we are? And you're just like, absolutely. I I sure do. do. <laughs> so plus, yeah. Plus we're in New York and it's this, yeah. uh, the trade shows that, that the company was doing at the time were all basically hair shows. Okay. So hair shows are, if you, ha- if you ever have the opportunity to go to a hair show, I know this sounds insane, but okay. if you have the opportunity, you have to do it because all, I, I imagine all trade shows have some sort of aspect of this, but specifically hair shows, there is this pomp and circumstance to it that is just absolutely incredible. It's yeah. not, it's not the fashion industry or, sure. you know, it's not, it's not, you know, high society necessarily, but it's a, it's a bunch of people who are doing creative work yeah. and, and that's, they all embrace that like creative aspect of what they do okay. and they show up to these things and they're there to have a good time and to party their asses off and to just do crazy stuff. Yeah. So the, the brands that are there pulling out all the stops, you're just seeing just you know, these insane displays of hair magic, mm-hmm. you know, everywhere you look, whatever yeah. the new cosmetic trends are, everybody's there's, there's glitter on everything. It's just, it's amazing. So we're there, like we're one of the few, like sort of exclusively masculine brands that's okay. represented there. Uh, but it was, you know, it was a great time. It was fun. Um, the whole goal for them was to, we, you know, we were selling product to people, but it was to find uh, barbers and, and hairstylists who wanted to carry the product in their stores. Okay. Right. And also to do some networking and make connections and whatever, but, uh, it went really well. We had a great time. Um, and I came away from that knowing all those people really well. And also to some degree, I guess, you know, finding this out after the fact, sort of proving myself to them that, you know, I cared about what they were doing, mm-hmm. that I was invested in it and and willing to, you know, be involved. Yeah. So within a year of that, I continued to write for the blog and uh, became the editor of the blog and did some more work there. But it, wa- it wasn't a job. It was just like a little extra cash here and there for okay. whatever I could, I could do. And then they offered me a position and it came at a really fortunate time for me because the company, the call center that I'd worked for, the larger company that had acquired that call center uh, was going through a lot of changes. And I was concerned about not necessarily the future of my job, um, because I, at that point I was very involved and it, w- it would have been difficult to just sort of instantly replace me. But um, I was worried about how much work there was going to be in the future, what was going to happen, uh, you know, what the, what my new responsibilities would be, whether there was any, uh, hope of advancement at that mm-hmm. point, or whether this was just kind of a dead end. Sure. So when can you handle bar offered me a job, you know, it was, I took it very seriously because it was, it was kind of a, an opportunity to get away from something that was, had become really toxic for me and mm. was really, uh, getting to be difficult in ways that, were affecting me, you know, like driving me to, to drink to excess and Mm. to, you know, not, not want to go into work the next day. And, uh, you know, all those, all those hallmarks of, of just a bad working environment, but 
it was paying the bills. Uh, I'm, I, I still, any, any time I'm employed, I'm happy to be employed because I know that not everybody is. And especially mm. now with people yeah. losing jobs left and right, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to, happy to have a job. And I was then as well, but it, it was time to make a jump. And I think probably for the first time in my life, I made the decision to do something that I wanted to do as opposed mm. to something that was, you know, more financially progressive or safer in, in the traditional sense of, you know, how a job works and, and what you do for a living. Gotcha. So that, uh, that would be my second one. Awesome. Um, let's go with that. Uh, okay. something, something you said there, uh, I feel like it's super important. Uh, you said it was the first time you uh, chose to do something that you wanted to do and it wasn't, yeah. you know, the safe choice, quote unquote, uh, that comes with, you know, other, um, types of job opportunities. Um, I can make mention to, uh, the, the Nickelodeon show in this, but I think it would be super, um, I think it would be very interesting to explore what other Adam at this opportunity, they send you this, this opportunity for a job. Um, and he doesn't take it. He doesn't take it. The, 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 the question, the question marks are, are too big in his mind. Uh, there's a, (laughs) there's a pattern of behavior where, no, I, I, I go for the job that, that it pays the best. I I go for the safe, for the safe bet. Oh, I love it. I love it. Okay. So, um, let's go ahead and unpack, uh, your life at the time of this flashpoint, this, this decision, I will take this job. Um, uh, what was, what was family? I, you, you, you were an adult and have been an adult for a while. I'm guessing at this yeah. point, cause you talked about, you were, you did what, 12 years in yeah. the call center before this. Okay. So you've yeah. been an adult for a while. Uh, what was family life like for you at that moment? Um, it was tough. Um, my mother was, has been, uh, had been a type one diabetic all of her life since she was, you know, like nine or 10 years old. Um, and she had increasingly had more difficult health problems as mm-hmm. her life went on. Um, by, by this point, she had been through, uh, a kidney and pancreas transplant had gotten a good solid, uh, nine or 10 years or eight, maybe more like eight to nine years out of that, which is, you know, about like the maximum expectancy you can get for, yeah. for that sort of transplant. And, uh, but but it had failed and she mm. was she was struggling she was on dialysis constantly mm. and was just experiencing a tremendous amount of health problems gotcha um yeah and then it uh let's see my my brother had moved away to go to school but he'd actually he'd moved back to the town that i lived in Mm-hmm. And the town that my parents lived in here in West Virginia. So I was seeing him okay. uh, more. And let's see, that would have been, yeah. So my niece had been born. Okay. And she was just and is an incredible person and mm-hmm. a wonderful, wonderful presence in my life. Uh, but my my brother and his wife had made the decision to move away from West Virginia. Oh no. 
Yes. And moved back to Pittsburgh where they, they both went to school where a lot of my family is Okay, uh, just for the sake of, of uh, getting a better job sure. and, you know, better, yeah. better living for their daughter. Okay. So, and then, you know, my dad is still very much a part of my life. He and my mom are still married. Um, he's dealing with mom's frequent health problems as best as he can. And, uh, you know, I, everything's kosher in terms of mm-hmm. our relationships. You know, we're all getting along, but I don't get to see them very often. Mm-hmm. Um, a routine thing that was a part of my life back then was being on call pretty much 24 seven all day, all night. Yeah. So, yeah. So the, the, the shift began usually around 10 AM and it ran usually until midnight, sometimes till 3 AM. And then there was always an hour or two of paperwork afterward to get caught up on. Now I wasn't always present for those shifts. In fact, at that point, you know, other people were managing them, but I was responsible for everything that took place. Hmm. So I would get phone calls about anything that was problematic. Yep. Um, I would get phone calls in the middle of dinners, uh, at the movies. Uh, there was, there's nothing I could do that didn't have the possibility of being interrupted by what, you know, for the most part would be a serious issue. Um, and when, when you're talking about a call center like this, a serious issue can be anything from, uh, an employee got into a fight in the break room Mm -hmm. to, there's a, there's a respondent on the, on the phone. Somebody, one of our employees has called a person and they're threatening to kill themselves. And then you have, you you have to call the police. There are these protocols that have to be followed. And it's like, and things like that happen just regularly. Mm -hmm. Um, in addition to that, there's the usual sort of pressure that you'd have with any job in terms of meeting performance, you know, where, where, where are you in terms of, uh, hitting your goals, et cetera. And it, the industry within that 12 years plus that I was involved in it mm-hmm. changed very rapidly. Uh, the rise of cell phones, mm-hmm. uh, the rise yeah. of do not call lists and people just generally being fed up with telemarketing in general. Now we weren't telemarketers, right? So none of those rules actually applied to us. None of those laws applied to us because we're, we're doing legitimate survey research, but yeah. Nobody knows that when you right. call them, you know. They just they, see a number. Gonna, yeah, you're just yeah. gonna scam them. Right. So it it affected my life and the quality of my life dramatically. Mm. Um, there were times where, like, I could I, <laughs> I remember uh, I was at, I was stuck at the office on Cinco de Mayo, and I made plans with my friends to meet up, and we were gonna, you know, party and have a good time, and they were two blocks away from where I was just having the time of their life. And I'm just stuck, you know, chained to this desk, just hating Ugh. my life, you yeah. know? Yuck. And they're, and they're constantly texting me like, where are you? When yeah. are you going to get here? Are you What's coming? Going on? Yeah. Uh-huh. Fourth round of margaritas. Where are you? You know? Oh, and it's no. just like, <laughs> yeah. So, um, it was just, it was just things like that, you know, yeah. but I did, uh, I had some great friends, uh, the people that I worked with were incredible. Okay. Uh, the people that were like the full-time staff there that were, there were people that, you know, I was responsible to some degree for hiring and promoting and shepherding. Um, they were all incredible human beings and I consider them all, uh, friends. Even to this day, we still, I still talk to many of them. Oh, that's and, cool. 
Yeah, and then even good. on like a, a national level, um, the other people that that worked in my position for other uh, call centers in other cities became very close friends. And again, you know, still people that I talk to regularly and, you know, uh, am involved in their lives and care about them tremendously. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what made everything, you know, go like it was, it was not the expectations of the clients. It was not the, the management level above us who just constantly wanted to browbeat us or tell us how, how terrible we were. It was the, the people that, that you worked with every day. And it was just that mentality um, if you've like, if you've ever worked in a restaurant through like a, a food rush, like, you oh, know, yeah. Oh, you just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, those are your people and yeah. you live and die by them, yeah. you know, and like those relationships that it's this weird, like trauma bonding that happens yeah. when you're just constantly under the gun and, uh, you know, you, 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 you just get through it somehow. Yeah. And, you know, so, but yeah, that was, that was essentially, I, I could go into greater detail about okay. how miserable I was, but. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the, it was definitely the first time in my life that I, uh, decided it was okay to drink during the day. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, is it, it's just you and your brother for my family. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then who's yeah. older? I am. Yeah. Big brother. Okay. Let me put this. Yeah. He's, uh, I'm two and a half years old. Than he is. Okay. So we're pretty close in age. Okay. Um, so besides day drinking, what were some of the hobbies that you had at that time? I didn't really have hobbies. Um, I would, I would, well, I take that back. Uh, I got into, uh, a culture called everyday carry also known as EDC. Yeah. Okay. Um, and EDC is, it's this idea. It's kind of like this, you know, the old sort of boy scout saying cub scout saying of be prepared, always be prepared. Yeah. And it's a, yeah. And it's about like having stuff on you that you might need. Right. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. So there's, there's like some extreme versions of it. Um, you know, if you've ever delved into prepper culture, like there's yeah. a whole, yeah, there's a whole mindset there. Yeah. Um, but then, there, then what this was, was more or less, uh, was what you have with you on at any given point during the day so when i first contacted this or came in contact with this it was like it was you know again a lot of artists whose work i was interested in they'd be like okay well today i have this sketchbook and i have you know this pencil and i have you know and i'm i also have this book that i'm reading and they would basically lay it all out and take a photo of it yeah yeah here's everything that I have on me right now. Yeah. It was super cool. It was like, yeah. oh man. And then you'd be like, oh, where'd you get that cool Zippo lighter? Oh, well, it's this guy. He, yeah. you know, he does this and he, he hand embellishes this leather case. And it's like, oh, that's amazing. Oh yeah. So that's this great. Huge rab- yeah. This huge rabbit hole of just like gear. And oh man, it got me like, I, I, you know, you start out and you, you just, it's th- this idea of having all this shit on you. And I would, have so much stuff in my pockets yeah. just like thinking that i was you know if anybody needed anything i was gonna i have got it, it i know? got it yeah yeah exactly oh man and and then you you <laughs> kind of move away from that as you get you know get deeper in you realize well i don't really need all of that stuff right. or if i if i have some of that and i keep it in my in my backpack or right. in my, my tote bag that's right. fine it doesn't need to be in my in pockets, the pockets all the time. Yeah. 
Yeah. But what do I need in my pockets? You know, and that yeah. came down to like, I always need a pen or a pencil. Yep. I, I'm one of those people who always has a knife on him. Okay. Part of that is cultural uh, because of where I grew up and how okay. I grew up. I was born in Colorado, lived in Texas, lived in West Virginia. Nice. It's just pocket knife country. Where, you know, where, right? in, um, where, how much time did you spend in Colorado? Uh, 10 years. Okay. So where, the first 10 years of my life, I was in Pueblo, Colorado. Get out of here. I lived in Pueblo, Colorado. Are you shitting me? No, I lived in Pueblo, Colorado in 1999 uh, for a full year. That's amazing. Holy uh, smokes. Dad, yeah. My mom and dad moved out there, started their life there. Mm -hmm. and I like absolutely fell in love with it. And my dad just bought a house out there and is moving out there. He's retired and he's going to get, get back to Pueblo. So oh my gosh, P town. So <laughs> yeah. So you're, you're it. coming out to Pueblo. Uh -huh. uh, we're going to stay at my dad's. It's going to be awesome. Uh, I can't wait. That. Absolutely. Yeah. I can't wait. Oh my gosh. Yeah. What that's, a weird coincidence. That's so great. Okay. All right. Yeah. I, yeah I, so, I, re I remember that. Um, so I, I, I couldn't tell you that it was called everyday carry, but there were like a few years ago, it was really hot around like, I guess what would be, what would have been social media, like mm -hmm. five to seven, maybe even a few years, uh, longer than that ago where there was a trend where people would have the, the top down view photos of, yep. Hey, here's what's in my pockets or here's yep. what's in my bag. And you would get the different, um, uh, like the different work, uh, the professional environments. Yeah. So I'm a yep. chef. This is what yep. I have. I'm a soldier. This is what I have. I'm a this, yep. I'm a this. And, and I, man, I, I loved those rabbit holes to the point yep. where, so now, like, like you said, I have, uh, I carry a pen, a Sharpie, uh, a knife. I have a lighter. I don't smoke, but I carry a lighter cause someone yep, might need it, here. you know? Mm -hmm. And then I have, you know, my keys, wallet, phone, but my wallet is one of those that has, uh, it's like a billfold, a metal billfold and around the edges, it has different, uh, tools on it. So I have, <sighs> I have a bottle opener. Yes. I have, yes. uh, like different size, uh, or I could use it as a wrench. Uh, and then I have two, there are two shapes on there. Um, a Phillips and a, a flathead screwdriver. My man. Yeah. Holy smokes. Yeah, so That's that, great. Yeah. So I, like I fell hard into that, into that whole culture. That's amazing. It's everything from what you just described to uh, like one of the weirder angles or niches that I wandered into was guys who would make uh, bottle openers mm -hmm. that were either multi-tool in some fashion okay. or uh, like, a, essentially like a brass knuckle you okay know? so um I, there's probably 30 of them scattered around my desk here <laughs> nice but yeah so it was this like you know designer aspect of what they were doing like mm -hmm. there was this uh intentional intentionality to what they were making to find a way to it's it's a bottle opener but it's also you know, like a, a hex key or it's, you know, it's whatever multi you yep. know facets it had yep. uh, to work the, work those things in there. And, and these guys are just like, you know, water jetting and seeing, seeing this stuff in their, in their garages. And it's like, and it was just beautiful to me. It yeah. was like another form of art to me. It's yeah. like, what can these guys come up with? And then some of them are also knife makers and that has always fascinated me. Oh, yeah. Um, and then a lot of the, a lot of the like, major pocket knife companies will work with these guys who are knife designers and oh. come up with these unique designs. And I, you know, fell for that super hard. Oh. So I, you know, I was at a point in my life where I had 
a little bit of money to spend because okay. I was making decent money. Um, and I was just, you know, bleeding all of it into these, into these hobbies of, yeah. you know, gear collecting, knife collecting. Uh, but then the, the other thing that came in around that same time, uh, and this was massive on Instagram about six or seven years ago, were artists making embroidered patches. I Ooh. always had this like fascination for embroidered patches. I used to be into punk culture and like, that's a huge aspect of, of punk culture. And, but these were people who were just like making small batches of, they would just take their own artwork and they would vector it and, and get it embroidered and, mm-hmm. you know, put the iron on backing on it and send it to you. And you would have this like little unique collectible piece of art that you could sew onto something and like, you know, wear it out or put it on your bag or put it on your jacket or, you know, whatever. And I just fell super hard into that. And that's been like, that's a hobby that I still engage with, you know, heavily. Awesome. Um, so it's, and that's led to some great friendships and getting to meet some incredible people, but also just this super, super weird, very specific rabbit hole of artists and very, very niche designs and, getting down to like, well, they only made 30 of these. So if you didn't get one when you sold them, it's going to cost you, you know, $300 if you, if you find somebody willing to part with yeah. like that, that type of thing, this weird yeah. like black market, secondary market <laughs> culture around it. Nice. Um, and, and mostly it's just, it's like everything else. It's just a, it's just a pissing contest. Yeah. Like who has the coolest stuff, Whoa. you know, but yeah. yeah. But you know, I, I, there's aspects of it that I love particularly okay. the, the, again, collectible art, you know, sure. recurring theme for me. Yep. Um, so I, I loved that. I was also, and still am, uh, just a huge fan of, uh, designer toys, uh, okay. toys in general. I, I'm fast. If it's made of plastic and it's shiny and bright, I love it. You know, I'm into it. That's amazing. Um, yeah. So those are, you know, those things were, very present in my life at that time because I just needed an outlet, you yeah. know? Um, okay. and, and I was, I was drinking a lot, but it was also like, I, I, I actually went through this self-assessment where I was like, am I an alcoholic or not? Like, let's, let's figure this out. Oh, wow. And based on my, what my drinking patterns were, I was not an alcoholic, but I was definitely a problem drinker because it was, okay. it was this weird sort of escapism for me. And if I went too far down the path, I wouldn't stop. So okay. it became this thing where it was like, I wasn't doing it all the time, but when I was, I was doing it to excess. Gotcha. It was bad. Okay. So, you know, it was like, wow. so I kind of pulled back from that as much as I could. Okay. Uh, when I saw that it was getting problematic and just went whole hog on these other hobbies. Gotcha. Uh, you know, getting into all this other stuff. Collecting that and I could waste my money on and yeah. not, and it wouldn't be alcohol. Sure. Okay. I can dig that. So, uh, having been a bartender, um, uh, I've met quite a few people that work in that industry and they I've met quite a few people in a similar situation where they don't drink all day, every day. They could, if it was there, yeah. they don't, uh, like there's this one dude who I know he's like, I, I don't have alcohol in my house. I don't because I'll drink it and I will yeah. drink it all, you know? And it's like, if I'm going from one to the room to the next and I pass a bottle I'm, I'm going to have a shot because, well, it's there. Let's go ahead and let's take a shot. And I'll do that all day until the bottle's gone, you know? So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a tough place to be where you're like, 
um, persistent with the consumption once you start, but being able yeah. to recognize, you know, like, okay, this is something that could potentially just wreck everything that I have and I am. Uh, so let's, let's dial back being able to catch it, you know, before it takes over is like very, very commendable right on. Well, thanks. Yeah. And, and I don't want any pats on the back for it. Like what the biggest reason that I stopped drinking, mm -hmm. uh, was that I, you couldn't get me to not drive. Um, people oh. would take, people would take my keys away and I would still, like, like I would, I would have a hidden it. key or I would sneak in and, you know, and like my friends who were trying to be helpful, like I would just confound them and hmm. somehow end up in my car just blacked out, you know, wow. and thankfully nothing happened, but it's, it's only by sheer, you know, luck and, and yeah. coincidence that something really bad didn't happen to me or to someone else. Right. And it didn't happen. It didn't happen a lot, but it, it even once was enough for me to say, Holy shit, you know, yeah. I need to I need to pump the brakes on this right. and Snap. It, you know, cause me to reevaluate some things. Okay. And, and it may, that. that may have even been a choice in me deciding I don't want to do this anymore. I want to I don't want to be I don't want to be at a job that makes me feel like I need to do this or that yeah. makes me puts me in a position where this seems like a reasonable thing to do. Okay. Okay. Um so you had mentioned that you were into punk Mm -hmm. What was the genre of music that you were listening to the most at the time of your decision? At the time of my decision, um, it, I, I've always been a, like a very cross genre kind of person. Okay. Um, I don't listen to a whole lot of punk anymore. Okay. Um, it was kind of an adolescent thing for me for the most part. Sure. Um, and not that, not that I don't still appreciate it or still listen to some of it. But um, it was for me, it was it was a signifier of an era of my life uh, of friendships that I had then. Mm -hmm. And it evokes all of those things to to a great degree. And I treasure that and appreciate that. OK, but at that point in my life, I was listening to um, extreme metal of some variety, whether okay. that be death metal or black metal and also uh, singer songwriter music. Okay. Like anything that was just emotionally intense. Okay. So that could be, that could be, you know, like a, a black metal album from Watane to like, even like, I don't know, some goofy power metal stuff from blind guardian mm. to getting my guts ripped out by a drive-by trucker song or a Jason Isbell song. Um, so it's kind of all over the map, uh, in terms of, you know, those things. Okay. Do you think that, um, as a purveyor of art and an, uh, someone who appreciates artistic expression and creation, uh, do you think you're more inclined to emotionally connect with music as a result? of appreciating the artistic expression therein, or, um, do you think even before you were able to connect those dots in your head, you were able to emotionally connect with music? Uh, I mean, I, I envy those things so much. I envy performers so mm -hmm. much and in every, every artist I have just tremendous envy for, um, but also just tremendous love for what they do. And I, you know, I, I idolize it in a way that, uh, 
you know, I certainly wish that I were capable of those things, but also like they, they just have profound meaning to me. Um, okay. So, so yeah, you, I was, as, go, ahead. go ahead. Well, I mean, I as, as a, as a, as a writer, uh, do you feel that you can contribute to uh, creation of music by providing uh, lyrical content and collaborating with um, composers or I mean, I would, I would love to do that. Um, uh-huh. But I don't, I don't, I am not my own best advocate and okay. I don't believe in myself and I don't, uh, I don't find value in what I do. Oh, a true uh, artist. <laughs> uh so it would never it, like if somebody were to ask me to do that i would be honored and humbled but also you know terrified sure that okay. you know that i was gonna fuck it up you yeah know? Um, okay okay but yeah i mean i would i would love to be involved in that and anytime i have the chance to if any anybody that i'm friends with who does anything musically or artistically or or you know i'd help the friend shoot a, a scene for uh uh a film project that he's working on the other day. It's like, I'll, I will help in any way that I can. I'd love to be involved. Uh, but it's not, those aren't things that I ever think of myself as being capable of. Okay. So um, I, I'm in this weird uh, relationship with that where, you know, I end up doing stuff like you mentioned psycho drive-in um, mm-hmm. and that's, it's, that is uh, TV and film review, you know, and it's just a way for me to talk about those things because I'm, I'm super passionate about them. Yeah, And I don't have, you know, I'm not making them, but I can engage with them by sure. saying, Hey, I really love this, or this was extremely well done. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I try not to be overly critical of things just for the sake of being negative. Uh, right. But, you know, and, I, and I'm not, uh, I didn't go to film school. So I, I, I don't have the authority to speak on these things in a way that say Roger Ebert would or somebody like sure. that. But I, I love them enough. And I think we're, we're in a, in a period of time where people write about things and they, and they blog about things and they talk about things and, and, uh, you know, take up these things that they're passionate about because they love them and they want to, they want to showcase them and they want to talk about how great they are and let other people know how great these things are. And I would consider myself a part of that. Okay. Okay. I can dig that. Yeah. Um, But go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, I, I, when it comes to music, uh, it, 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 it's so accessible mm-hmm. and it's such a, it's much easier to make music a part of your everyday life than it is film or theater or, oh, yeah. uh, definitely, you know, oh, yeah. art, mm-hmm. um, unless you're making it. Uh, but you know, I can, I can look at, I've got, you know, 300 tiny pieces of art on my desk right now, you wow. know, I can soak that up and I can appreciate that. And mm-hmm. all these things have different meaning to me and different, you know, people are responsible for designing them or making them. And, and all of that, you know, is something that I can carry with me, but then I can also just hit a button and turn a, a, a song on right. and just be completely emotionally blown away by it in a way that is just powerful. Yeah. Right on. Uh, what was your typical routine when you were, um, so as you, as you've stated, you're pretty much on call all day, every day. Um, how did you prepare for the day? 
knowing that, you know, it doesn't matter. You, you could be called on to do some, some stuff or work anyway, but I mean, what was yeah. a typical routine for you in that time? Um, yeah, mostly I would, I, usually I would wake up around eight or nine, um, you know, the usual hygiene routine, uh, a big part of, of the day for me was spending a little bit of time with my dogs, mm. uh, before I would have to go to work. Uh, so I would take them out, you know, hang out with them for a little bit. Um, are these then, the, the two Frenchies that you have? Yeah, it's a uh, Boston Terriers. Boston yeah, Terriers. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. They're the, they're like the, the tinier version of Frenchies. Gotcha. But, uh, yeah. So, you know, hang out with those guys and then make my way to work. And I worked in downtown Huntington, which Huntington is a, is a very small town. It was like a 10, 15 minute commute. It's no big deal. Um, but I worked in a, in what became a very cool part of, of my city, okay. uh, because it, it underwent like a huge renovation and, uh, they put in this, you know, kind of upscale shopping district, like mm. right across the street from where I worked. Um, but so while, like, while I was ex- taking on this new position, these things were developing and, you know, so I, my routine was I would get there, you know, usually a little bit before 10, I would go to there. I had my choice of coffee shops that I could go to, Okay. go to the sweet, you know, little locally owned spot where I could go to a Starbucks and either way I was going to, you know, buy a $5 coffee or, or whatever, <laughs> yeah. you know, because I deserved it. Damn it. Yeah. And I was headed to my <laughs> shitty job. So uh. yeah, I would load up, load up on, uh, some, some high octane caffeine and nice. I would come into the office and it was usually, uh, there was usually very little going on during the day, okay. but then it was a series of meetings throughout the day that led up to the shift starting, which usually happened around three or 4 PM. And we would have anywhere from a <clears> hundred <throat> to 150 people that would come in for the shift. Oh, uh, yeah. And then there were a rotating staff of uh, about 20, 25 full and part-time people that were managers. Okay. So I would meet with that management group before the shift started. Okay. Before I met with them, I would meet with my boss and my peers okay. for sometimes hours at a time trying to shoehorn all of these projects into whatever our availability was for that particular day. Mm-hmm. And we did this every day. So it wasn't like, okay, well, what do you guys have for the week? Let's knock this out on a Monday. It was every single day. How are we going to juggle? And there, you know, there could be 50 projects that we had that we were responsible for at any given time. And some of them might only need a few hours of attention. Mm -hmm. They still needed a few hours of attention. That was a book you were going to have to open, a book you were going to have to close, (laughs) figures you were going to have to report. And it was just, you know, it was just complicated in a way that always felt super unnecessary to me. Um, and I, and I worked for a person, my boss at the time and, you know, with, without getting into, you know, just being nasty about it. Um, the guy was extremely difficult to work with and, uh, did not make any of this process any easier. So there were, there were times where I would be in meetings with him and, and, uh, other people on his level or my level almost for the entire day. And I would, I would have to give my managers the instructions for their shift, sometimes just minutes before that shift started. 
So like they could kind of guess maybe based on what we did the day before or what they thought yeah. was going to happen, but we never really knew exactly how it was going to be because there were just, there was too much in play and wow. nobody would say no to the things that needed to be said no to. So that would happen. Then the shift would start and I was responsible for, you know, everything that happened on an operations level. I wasn't necessarily human resources. We, we usually had a person available for that, but sometimes I had to fill in there. Okay. Uh, I had, was responsible for all of the discipline. Ooh, I had to, you know, if anybody had to be fired or, you know, be told that they'd done something wrong, I had to be a part of that. Um, so I would spend a few hours pretty much of every day, you know, giving people the bad news. Yeah. And, you know, and at some point in between here, I was drinking uh, a lot of coffee. Sometimes I was making another run to the little local joint across the street <laughs> or the Starbucks across the block, right. and getting more coffee and, you know, just running on caffeine. So that would usually carry me till about seven or eight at night. Okay. So 10, 10 to about seven or eight. And then I would usually leave there and it, a good night was not getting phone calls until the shift ended. Oof. And then I would get the, get the report. Mm. Uh, a bad night was just constant phone calls from the time I left until, you know, two or three o'clock in the morning when we wrapped everything up Oof. and yeah, that's right. And then start all over again. Right. Now my weekends where I didn't have to go into the office, they were okay, but they were mitigated by the fact that those were when we had big day shifts so okay. nine o'clock in the morning on Saturday, sometimes earlier, the phone calls started Jeez. and they would go until, you know, oh, the middle of the evening. And then Sunday was usually, we wouldn't get started until maybe 10 or 11. So it was mm -hmm. okay. But it was, just, and it would just, you know, there was, there was never really freedom, but yeah. I did manage uh, one of my, my peers and I, a very good friend of mine uh, who had the same position that I did. Eventually we worked out a system where uh, his people would call me if, if he needed to have some free time okay. and, and my people would call him if they needed to, if I needed to be away. So, okay. so you, you had some, out, you had some backup. Um, yeah, but it was, it was all sort of unofficial. We weren't supposed to do that. We just <laughs> kind of did it because we needed to. Yeah, no, um, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. I wish but like you guys, you guys that are listening, uh, you can't see, but I am constantly, uh, sympathetically just eye rolling and <laughs> making all of the faces that, that go with hearing this type of, um, just having to deal with this type of workload. Um, man. And it's, and the thing is, is, uh, you know, I have perspective and I had perspective even then, like I have mm -hmm. friends who are nurses. I have friends who work in, uh, the healthcare industry, I have, you know, friends who've been in the military, like sure. I don't, I didn't have a hard job compared to what a lot of people do. And I yeah. would never pretend that I didn't, but the demands on my time were extreme yeah. and the, the situations that we were put in were difficult and mm. it was all, it, it was all just moving paper around. Like there was no need for it. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, a better manager, not necessarily a better manager than me, mm -hmm. but a better manager of the, of the, the company as a whole, uh, would have been able to, I think, mitigate a lot of that sure. and make it, make it, you know, yeah. a little bit easier. And whether that means layering in more staff and spreading the responsibility around mm -hmm. or finding, you know, better ways to get the workflow out. Um, 
but it, we just didn't have those opportunities because right. we weren't, we weren't allowed to make those decisions. Right. So it was really, it was really tough. Okay. Um, two more questions. Um, you, um, you have a glorious beard. Um, it, it goes, um, you can't see, but it goes down to like your belly button. Yeah. About that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's the type of beard that he currently has. Uh, did you have this beard at the time as well? Or was it? So no, I've, I've had a beard since of some variety since 2000. Okay. I left a a food service job in 2000 and Mm -hmm. I started working in this call center as a, as a, a guy on the phones basically. So I was really in that building for 17 years. Wow. But yeah, so I had a beard. I used to have, uh, it was a very elaborately shaped beard. It is so, it was so goofy. I I need to find pictures to send you, but I had a handlebar mustache that was very tightly curled. Okay. And then I, my, my beard for the most part, all of it was shaven. Uh, it it was there, but it was very thin and maybe only a half an inch long. Okay. But then the goatee was super long. Gotcha. And I would put a bunch of goop in it. And it just, it looked, it just looked, I looked like a circus performer. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, but you know, it was like, it was, it was for, for a few years anyway, I wore it that way. And it was just kind of, it became a thing that I was known for. And, okay. you know, people liked the mustache and would, you know, want to touch it or tell me how great they thought it was. I, I learned all about oh, every old woman's obsession with Raleigh fingers. Of course. Of course. It was, yeah. It's good so, times. But then, then uh, I let it, that I just decided I'm, I don't want to shave anymore. I don't yeah, want to just let it go. I just want to see what happens if I just let it all come in. And that was mm-hmm. about eight years ago. Okay. And I haven't, haven't looked back since. So. Wow. Okay. Um, uh, to follow up on that, um, does, how, how many people would touch your hair without your permission? Um, it, it, when I worked, downtown especially and i was around a lot of people it was an everyday thing really at least once a day yeah people would just come up and just like grab your goatee or like touch they your want to touch it yeah yeah and uh and with, without talking with you first right they would just kind of walk up and say wow and then touch nine times out of ten you could you could tell it was coming because okay. they would get this weird sort of glazed look in their eye and you would see the hand like creeping Start towards to your face <laughs> and and I, you know, usually I would say it's okay. You, you can touch it if you want. Please use the back of your hand. Yeah. Because the thing that would often happen is they would want to like, you know, claw into Grope. it. And yeah. it is, I, yeah, I don't, I don't have like tight curls or anything, but there's enough waviness here that it would that people yank would get their, their hands caught in it. Yeah, uh, and they'd yank some out. Yeah. Ouch. Yeah. Uh, oh, and man. then there, there are there were people who were like like super maliciously would want to pull it and yeah, you know, like be shitty about it, dude. Um, but yeah, uh, not, I, I didn't run into too much of those, but yeah, okay. anytime I was out in public, anytime I'm out in public now, really, uh, there's, there's usually somebody who's overly fascinated by it. Right. Um, oh, I mean, I, people used to yell duck dynasty or ZZ top at me. That right. still happens quite a bit. Okay. And it's like, I, you know, I'm sorry. Those are your only frames of reference. Yeah. This, seriously. <laughs> those are the only you know, just, two beards that, you know, <laughs> yeah. Just once I would, I would love for someone to be like, Gimli, son of Gloin. Yes. You know, and like throw some, <laughs> throw some LOTR dwarf madness at nice. you, you know, but. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, not too much of that. Although, it, like, the fun thing is, is how kids react to it. 
okay. uh, because they, you know, they think of like Santa or, you know, sometimes it's, sometimes it's scary for them and that sucks. Like really sure. little kids get freaked out by it, but yeah. um, I've been, I've been fortunate enough to be able to play Santa a few times. That's awesome. It is, man. I mean, there is, there is just not, if, if I could pick my job, it would be Santa. Like Santa? there's nothing better in the world than to just give kids gifts and tell them good things and right. like let them be happy about something. And it's like, yes, it's, it's all BS, but it's a magical kind of BS yeah. and they'll figure it out eventually. And hopefully yeah. they won't hold it against you. But. Yeah. Oh man. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So I've never had, I've never had a beard as long as yours. I've had beards um, that are maybe like an inch or two off my face, mm-hmm. but the way that my beard grows off of my, my jawline is it starts to curl back on itself. Yep. And I have to be intentional of like combing it out, combing it out, combing like yep. all day, every day, or else it just like folds back on itself and then it gets knotted in there. Yeah. It's, it's very annoying, but uh, I have had really long hair on the top of my head several times. And there was a point where I worked at circuit city. That's what it's called. Circuit city. Mm, uh, and I, and I had a, a lot of hair, but my hair is soft and it's curly and it just kind of like floats. Um, so on like on a daily basis, several times a day, I would get strangers just walk up and just run their fingers through my hair. Ugh. And I'm like, what are you, what are you yeah. doing? No, it's such, a, it's such a violation. It, it really, really is. is. Oh man. Yeah. And then like when they it, would stick their hand in and then take a handful of it and I'm like, why? What do you, why? Stop it. No, yeah. you will not get off on my hair. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know? Oh my gosh. Oh, yeah. that would drive me nuts. So I can't, and that's like on, on the back of my head or on the side, but the idea that someone would come up in front of my face and reach for my face, man, I like, I, I have you punched anybody? I'm, I feel like it would be hard for me to not just like biff people in their face with like the butt of my hands. They're like, no, what are you doing? Stranger, get out of here. I've definitely wished that I've punched people, uh, but I mean, like I can deflect pretty well. Um, I've usually, like I said, nine times out of 10, you see it coming, you, you have a chance to address it. Okay. Um, and for the most part, if it's somebody who doesn't look like they're, you know, they're, they're intoxicated or they're trying to hurt me or, or they're, you know, wouldn't be able to differentiate between hurting me or not. I can, you know, kind of physically, you know, prevent them from, from touching me. But yeah, sometimes you don't, you don't catch yeah. it. And, you know, um, but for the most part, it's like, it's, you know, it's, it's the, <laughs> the type of people who are fascinated mm-hmm. by your hair or my beard. Right. They're, they're not the brightest bulbs, oh, you know, like yes. they get, I, if, if that your will bring them on a small amount of joy, they can, they can touch, they can okay. touch it. It's okay. You know, like <laughs> I, sometimes I would hold out the end so they could touch the end. And okay. They, oh, and they're always amazed that it's soft. Like right. I think they expect it to be like steel wool or something. Oh yeah. And, oh yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, that's always a good end to talk about beard products and, you right. know, oh, well I, I put I'll oil on this. it. Yeah. Day. Yeah, okay. exactly. Okay. I can dig but, that. That's smart. Yeah. Um, I one, tried. yeah. One last question. Um, mm-hmm. what, well, okay. So let me, there are two questions, one content question and then, uh, a date question. What is your, what was your favorite quirk about yourself at the time? A quirky part of you. 
It's a good question. Um, you know, it was like, it was a very like business casual environment. So mm -hmm. I think just, ha just having the beard was something that, um, was unorthodox for the type of work that I was doing. Okay. But that's kind of, it was like a weird side benefit of how the place was structured mm -hmm. and the fact that I worked remotely and also the fact that, you know, my boss, as much as he cared about stuff he shouldn't have, just didn't care about that at all. You know, oh, wow. like okay. didn't, didn't give me a hard time about it. Okay. Let me have that or whatever, you know, I guess. Okay. Um, so like in terms of like physical things, that was definitely you know, one of the, one of the, the unique aspects of, of who okay. I was at that time. So but, the, uh, the, the beard was like an intentional, not just, Hey, let's see what happened. No, this was like a part of you that you knew was interesting that you kind of fostered as this interesting part of you. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, again, I grew up around bikers and hippies and outdoorsmen and like beards were a staple of, you know, like I was born in, in the mid seventies. So uh, especially up through the eighties, like that was just a, you know, cultural thing then. Mm -hmm. Um, so I always identified with it in that sense. Um, and then when, and, and I, as from the time that I first could, I grew a beard. I had a beard when I was like 17 years old. Nice. Um, yeah. And, uh, I just always liked having one. I do have, and this is why it's because I have a butt chin. Oh, do you? Yeah, yeah. The and it's villain's chin. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, okay. But it, it's in it, and you know, I I don't just grow the beard to cover it up. I lived for a decade in food service with having to have a clean shaven face. You know, I don't care. But sure. uh, when I could, when it was an option, I would I would grow it, grow out. it out. Okay. And so when I left food service, um, I I wanted to to give it a shot and, gotcha. and started doing interesting things with it and sure. styling it and, okay. uh, you know, took some pride in that, I guess. I, the other, the other thing I have to mention, cause nobody, uh, listening will see this is that I'm completely bald. Yep. I have been most of my life. Um, oh. at this point, I, I, I shaved my hair into a mohawk when I was, uh, 19 score for the last time. And while I was doing it, I noticed this, there was this one little really soft spot on the back of my head. I was like, what is that? And I got a, a second mirror out and it was like, oh, I have a bald spot. I'm 19 oh, no. years old and I have a bald spot. Oh, yeah. no. So, so yeah, so I had this Mr. T Mohawk going on that I loved. And, uh, and I was like, this is, this is my last Mohawk. Like I'm done That's after it. this. So, oh, man. so I started shaving my head regularly after that. And okay not having any head hair, you know, it's like, I don't, I don't spend time on that necessarily outside sure. of shaving it once a week, but, yeah. um, it all, all that attention went South. To gotcha. the beard, so, okay. Yeah. Okay. So you, st you still got to let your hair down, but it's exactly. not the top hair. The, the <laughs> yeah, face exactly. hair. I love yeah. it. I love it. Okay. Um, and then what year did you start working for, um, can you handlebar? What, what, what was the date? Like, I don't need the exact day, but like when, what no, year was the I can the actually decision? give you the exact date because I have it right, y'all. It's been three and a half years. My my apologies. I said four and a half earlier. Okay, That's so how time flies during the quarantine. But right. it was uh, March of 2017. March of 2017. 
perfect. Okay, so this is a, a fairly recent decision for you. Yeah. So uh, you're you're married, right? I am. Okay. And you you don't have any children, just the two dogs. Correct. Correct. Okay. So let me make sure. I put, how long have you guys been married? Uh, since two thousand three. Two thousand three. Cool beans. Congratulations, man. That's so exciting. Thanks. Yeah. Cool. All right. Yeah, we, uh, we were we were married on April nineteenth. And then my niece was born on April 19th. So it was a very special day now. Same day or is she young? Oh, no, no. She's, yeah, she's younger. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. That's right. You said your, your brother, well, I guess he moved, he moved away when the, the show, right? The cartoon around the time of the cartoon? Yeah, it was around, around that time. Okay. So a few years ago. ago. Okay. Cool beans. Yeah. All righty. At this point of the show, um, I think we have enough information to come up with a pretty interesting story for other Adam. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll listen to a little bit of music, uh, get pumped because uh, I'm likely going to find some uh, some pretty energetic metal music to throw on for the next few minutes uh, before we come back to to really uh, to really uh, re- remind ourselves of uh, 2017 Adam um, and take it away from there. Uh, but then when we come back, we will listen to the story that I uh, will write and then uh, Adam and I will, will have a chat about it. So uh, thanks for being here. Please stick around.
This concludes Other Adam Part 1. This episode continues in Other Adam Part 2.